Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Carlos Domingo, CEO of Securitize, a security token issuance platform poised to democratize retail access to the private capital markets. It's no secret that value has shifted dramatically since the dot-com crash from the early 2000s from the public capital markets to the private capital markets. In short, companies are staying private for longer. But this value in the private capital markets has historically been gated to a small group of accredited investors. Security tokens are really poised to level the playing field for retail investors and even serve as a way to improve and level up engagement between companies and shareholders. I learned a ton from Carlos during this conversation, and I know you will as well. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Carlos, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the pod with me. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for the invite. It's my pleasure to be here. How are things going? Congratulations on your recent Series B round. Things are going much more calm now (laughs) that we've closed the round. Because obviously the, the first six months of the year has been very hectic with uh, a lot of activity in the industry, in the company, with a lot of hiring, and then in parallel closing the Series B, which uh, obviously took a lot of my time. Yeah, well, I bet lots of plans are um, fast underway at Securitize, so you don't get much downtime. Uh, but one thing I know you have been doing with your free hours, because you've tweeted about it, that is reading up on S1s, uh, which for our audiences is, is basically yes. a document <laughs> companies have uh, to, to fill out in order to go public. And Carlos tweeted about this the other day. So let me just read your quote, because I think it's it's so funny. Uh, Robinhood S1 is out. Nice reading for the long weekend. Reading S1s of interesting companies is one of my favorite activities. You learn a lot about their business. So now that you've revealed this hobby of yours, Carlos, <laughs> you have to tell us what are some interesting facts you've learned either about Robinhood or other companies whose S1s you've read through? Actually, the last one I'm reading, which I haven't finished yet, is the one from Circle. I don't know if technically it's an S1, but anyway, they had to file something similar to an S1 because they are going public through a merger. And given that I know Circle and, uh, and, and Jeremy and the, the company, it's kind of interesting to, to read that and also see the invest, which most people don't realize is still part of uh, Circle. So, so that was the, the last one I've you know, read halfway through. Uh, Robinhood was very interesting. I mean, obviously, there's some shocking things about like how they've been investigated and uh, all the fines and everything they, they had. But it's also pretty remarkable, like the, the retail participation growth that they had, right? And this is very relevant also to what we do because they operate on the public capital markets. We operate on the private capital markets. But, you know, how to bring retail participation to private capital markets is a big thing of a big part of what we do and, and our vision, right? So it was interesting to see how they made it happen on the public side and, you know, think about how we can make the same thing happen on the private side. Absolutely. We're going to be spending a lot of time today uh, talking about this trend towards democratizing access to the private markets, right, as you've just mentioned. And a key part of this trend is the rise of interest in security tokens. To offer our audience a brief definition here, and you can fill in any gaps that I've missed, uh, security tokens are regulated investment contracts on the blockchain, which can represent 
a number of assets like stocks and bonds and real estate. Um, and security token offerings are a hybrid, basically, of what we understand as initial coin offerings, also known as ICOs, and the traditional IPO model. And, 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 and basically, these public offerings are of tokenized securities. So, Carlos, how is that definition? Would you add anything to that? And could you give us a sense of how large the security token market is at, at this point? No, I think the definition was was great. Uh, it is, as you said, basically a a way to leverage uh, you know blockchain technology to to natively represent securities and represent the ownership in the security. Um, I will say I would like maybe a couple of things. One is that you know people don't think about it, but being able to prove that you own shares in a company is actually not as simple as people think. Um, and this technology actually solves that problem, which then in in turn solves the problem of attaching to the ownership of the company something beyond the, the equity itself and other type of, uh, of perks. And I'll just give you one example. Um, I, I'm sure you guys have been following all the, as we mentioned from the Robinhood as one, the, the increased retail participation, right? So, so AMC, which is one of these companies that has benefited from you know, this increased retail participation, has grown a thousand percent in share price last year. And apparently now like more than 70% of their investors are retail investors. So. So the, the CEO of AMC, which is this, this uh, cinema uh, chain, they basically put up a press release saying that, you know, he wanted to, to thank the, the passionate retail investor, I think he put on the press release, uh, an enthusiastic base of passionate individual shareholders with a free popcorn if they are AMC shareholders. And I was like, how is that going to work? Because, you know, how do you prove you're an AMC shareholder, right? It's not as simple as people think. Traditional capital markets, they don't have a simple way to do that. Um, I, you know, what they're going to do, they're going to show their Robin Hood app, you know, at the entrance of the cinema. So you can see there's AMC shares there. And so I went and actually bought a shares of AMC at Robin Hood. And then I went to, they have a portal called AMC stockholder portal or anything, AMC shareholder portal, whatever, where you can create an account and, and, and get your free popcorn. And guess what? You know, when it comes to like register as a shareholder, they, they don't have any way to verify it. It's just a checkbox that you have to self-represent that you are actually AMC shareholder because there is no simple way for them to, to verify it, right? So imagine that they had used security tokens and then you had your, you know, your wallet in your browser and you go to the website, you know, you connect the, the wallet with the website through like all these web 3.0 websites work. And then the website itself can then read that you have the token that represents the shares of AMC in your wallet and they can uniquely and irrevocably prove that you're a shareholder, right? So, so that's one of the things I will add about security tokens that people don't tend to think about it. And the second one is that, you know, they also become easier to trade. In particular, if, <clears throat> if they're, uh, you know, private securities, which tend to contain a lot of, like, complicated uh, compliance rules. And this is the important thing to understand is that, and this is why I'm excited about what Circle is doing with the stable coins, is that this is the first time in history where we have, on the same ledger, we represent you know, something that represents securities and something that represents cash with the same underlying technology, right? Like you can use both ERC-20 tokens to represent a security and to represent, um, let's say, USDC a stable coin, right? And then, you know, trading against each other becomes much easier because they're on the same ledger. So you only have to update one ledger to update basically the clearing and settlement uh, process of trading securities. And then on top of that, blockchains have things like, you know, Atomic swaps that guarantee that both tokens move simultaneously or none of them move. So there's no counterparty risk that I give you the cash and you don't give me the securities or vice versa. So, so it's very powerful. And you can apply also compliance on the fly, right? Like smart contracts will 
control that, let's say if you're from Hong Kong and I'm from the US and you know there's something called flowback that doesn't allow people that bought securities outside the US to sell it back to the US people for private securities when you do a reg DM, I guess, in parallel. So the smart contracts can actually enforce in a programmatic way that this trade actually doesn't happen or it happens if it's legal, right? So so I will add those two things to, to the description you add. One, you know, is the ability to, to prove the ownership on the securities in a very simple way. And the second, the, the how you simplify, you know, trading and eliminate all the intermediaries that typically involve in, in, in trading securities. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, there is a, a research article that, Cointelegraph, their research team just came out with, and they mentioned tokenization as part of this larger trend towards the reestablishment of bearer financial assets um, and all the benefits that you've just mentioned, right, Uh, including transparency and liquidity, instant settlement, uh, which are all things that don't necessarily exist in the traditional equity markets right now. But also on top of that, which I think gets overlooked sometimes that we take for granted in crypto currently are two points. One is capital efficiency and the other one is earning interest, right? Earning yield on your assets. Yeah. Uh, which which people can do on cash, right? Which arguably is the easiest sort of point of conversion for traditional investors. Yeah. So, what is your take on those points? Yeah, I think that's um, that's very important, right? So, so look, um, capital markets, like because you you can earn uh, interest on securities. It's just that it's not accessible to the everyday person, right? But the large banks do that all the time, right? They they, they use them as collateral. They put them for uh, you know short sellers and things like that. It's just that these these things are earning. Uh, a yield um, on cash, as you mentioned, and other things. These are things that so far have been, you know, restricted to the very wealthy and to the, uh, you know, the large banks and large institutions and, and the, the everyday people have never had access to, to these things. And um, it's, uh, if you think about participation in private capital markets, there was an, an, an SEC report from 2019 that in 2018 there were $1.8 trillion raised privately in the U.S., out of these $1.8 trillion, there was only 200,000 accredited investors and almost no retail participation, when in the US there is 16 million accredited investors. So even with the accredited investor, which is already kind of a restricted definition, but there's many, there's 16 million is a lot, then only 200,000 participated, right? So, so in some sense, you know, blockchain and security tokens, what they enable is kind of like the long term of capital markets. Um, the same way that, let's say, internet enabled the long tail of, let's say, commerce or the long tail of content or, in the case of Google, the long tail of advertising, right? Where, you know, before, it, for a company, it was impossible to advertise unless you were a very large company, right? Because you had very limited space. You have to go to TV or you have to go to a newspaper. And today, thanks to things like Google, anybody can advertise. You can have a very small restaurant in the corner and then place a, a Google AdWords that will be you know, show up to the right people at the right place, right? So, so this is this is great, and this is what internet enables. If you think about blockchain as kind of like the next, you know, utility, sort of like the internet, the public blockchains, what I think they will enable is the long term of capital markets. Like for all these companies, that it's difficult for them to participate in capital markets or investors, both both sides. Suddenly, they'll be able uh, to do it, right? So, so that's what I think is the is the the powerful thing, and and you know. Aligning financial incentives is is very important, right? So, the, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started the podcast, I was I listened to the interview you did with Jason Blau uh, the other day, and he actually mentioned that NFTs for artists was a way to align financial incentives, right? And that he was doing these NFTs for music where you can actually, you know, have some of the rights, future rights for the for the music, right? So, IC security tokens is the same thing. Um, 
to align the financial incentives of the consumer of a product with the product itself, right? Which is, was kind of like the ethos of the ICO. <laughs> but, you know, there were no, it was not clear whether those things were legal, and in many cases probably they were illegal, right? So, so this is kind of like the same thing, but in a 100%, let's say, regulated and, and legal way, right? So it would be great if, you know, you can sell, uh, you know, a security token that, you know, for people that are a fan of your podcast, that in a very simple way they can actually buy a piece of equity in your podcast and therefore they'll be more incentivized to listen to your podcast, to promote it on Twitter, to put it everywhere, because if your podcast does well and eventually you sell it or you pay a dividend, they have a piece of it, right? So, and on top of that, if you can then provide them some degree of liquidity, because otherwise for people it's difficult to do private investments, then, you know, that's, that's the, the, the full circle that comes together, right? So, and we'd issue it through Securitize. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, so thinking about it from the company's perspective, right? We've seen a, uh, not a number of, of, of companies IPO, but a number thinking about IPOing Coinbase might be the most prominent ones uh, in our, our audience's minds right now. In your view, what types of companies right now benefit most from issuing security tokens versus going the traditional route of IPOing? Well, first, you know, to, to IPO is very difficult. So Coinbase IPO when it was $50 billion, right? Uh, so I think that that discards 99% of the companies in the crypto space, right? Now, Circle is going through a SPAC, which is kind of like a way to do uh, an IPO in a simpler and cheaper way, but it's already going public at a like, few billion dollars, right? So there is plenty of companies out there that are worth 100 million, 200 million, 600 million, even a billion, that, you know, for them, the, the traditional IPO has insurmountable barriers for, to making happen. It's just too expensive, it's too complicated, uh, et cetera. So I think those companies that, but they also have a, a good, let's say, base of customers that they can actually try to raise from, um, they're the perfect ones, uh, I think, for security tokens, in my opinion. So you probably heard that we did, uh, we enabled the, the Reggae Plus offering for a company called Exodus Movement, which is a crypto wallet. Uh, a Reggae Plus, for the people that don't know, is actually something that was uh, passed into law by the SEC in the US in 2012 as part of the what is called the Jumpstart Our Own Business Startups, or the Jobs Act, as it's usually referred to, as an alternative to a traditional IPO, right? So it's a way for you to do an IPO, which was uh, up to, until recently, was only up to $50 million you could raise. Now you can raise $75 million. Um, and then you can raise from retail investors. The filing is much simpler. Uh, the qualification by the SEC takes less time. Uh, so the, therefore the cost and the ongoing compliance cost is also lower, right? So that's a perfect, in my opinion, for companies that can actually do that, that's the perfect way to do it with security tokens because first it becomes easier to, like what, what the Exodus does was brilliant, right? So they have the crypto wallet and they allow the, their customers to basically invest in Exodus directly from the wallet. We were behind the scenes providing all the compliance layer because this is a, a, it's an offering, right? So you have to look at YCAML, you have to qualify people, you have to discard people from either certain states or certain countries where you're not allowed to invest in securities, etc. And when that happened, they could actually pay for the securities in, in, US, in I think they allow Bitcoin, ETH and USDC. And then on the same wallet, you go and deposit the token that represents the securities in, in Exodus. And then now they're looking at enable secondary market trading. So these guys raised $75 million in, in 60 days, which is remarkable. We onboarded, you know, lots of investors. I think it was more than, more than 70,000. And then out of that 10%, around 10% of that ended up investing in the, in the company, right? So I can guarantee you this 10% that invested this, you know, close to 7,000 investors, these guys now are funds for life of Exodus, right? 
because now they own a piece of the company uh, and they have, you know, they've aligned their financial incentives with, you know, their users uh, to the point that now these users are not just, um, you know, users of the product, but they are also shareholders, but they are also kind of advocates and brand ambassadors, right? Because they have a vested interest in the company being successful financially. So, so seventy thousand securitized users that can then deploy and invest in any type of deal that comes through and and of that 70,000 7,000 invest in in Exodus is that correct Oh yeah well we we have more than 300,000 investors in our platform across all the many deals this was just one deal which was the Exodus so every time you know we work with a company to enable a security token offering or, or somebody that wants to tokenize their existing cap table not necessarily to raise money they, we have we create what is called a securitized ID, which is an investor passport that is attached to, you know, your wallet uh, on the blockchain. So that way we have wallets that people that we actually know who they belong to, and that's the way we can control the compliance of the tokens that represent securities moving from wallet to wallet. So we have a database of more than three hundred thousand uh, already. We actually released the product, this this Unify ID or investor passport, in twenty twenty. So it's been only eighteen months that it's been out there. And it's been growing tremendously. From since Q1 2020, we've grown the database 25x, uh, which is unbelievable. And this is very powerful because once you've created this investor passport, that's it. You can then go to any offering for any of our customers, and you don't have to do the compliance again because we've already done the compliance one, and we move that uh, information across the different offerings as well as now soon when we launch securitized markets for the secondary market uh, access. So compliance. An onboarding of investors, which is one of the biggest pain points of private capital markets, is, gets eliminated. Mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, let's spend some time now talking more about the subject of private markets, right? You've brought that up quite a bit. And to give some figures here, private security has accounted for about $2.7 trillion of new capital raised in 2019, which was more than double the $1.2 trillion raised for all publicly traded securities in, in that same year. And you mentioned before, might have been in another podcast conversation uh, or on Twitter, that most of the fundraising uh, used to happen in the public capital markets. And now that value is shifting over to the private capital markets. Can you talk to us about what's been driving this massive shift in value? So look, if you, you know, I'm, I'm older than you and older than a lot of other people. So I remember the dot-com times when, you know, tech companies for the first time started going public massively, right? And at that time, which was, you know, more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago, companies went public when they were relatively small. So a company like Amazon went public, I think it was like very, you know, single billion dollars. Intel went public when it was not even a uh, billion dollars, uh, companies like that. And then, you know, they went public and then when they, you know, going public basically means that, you know, you can retail, people can actually purchase the securities, right? That's kind of like the main uh, difference. And then if you think at Amazon today is a whatever, $2 trillion company, and it went public at, you know, let's say $2 billion. So, so people have made, I made a thousand, uh, you know, X on, um, um, on this uh, on, on this stock, right? Um, now, the, today is the opposite is happening. Like companies like you know Coinbase or recently Airbnb, etc. They go public when they're like fifty hundred billion dollars. Like Airbnb went public at a thousand at a hundred billion dollars, and the company was sixteen years old by the time it went public. So what has happened is that basically, especially after the dot com time and the dot com crash, and then Sarbanes Oakley and a number of laws that were passed in the U.S. 
um, they started a trend that companies, you know, avoided going public uh, as much as they could. So that was started by Google and then Facebook. These are companies that went public very late for what used to be the norm there. And that has continued happening with many, many companies after that. And then there's two reasons. One is because obviously going public has become very costly um, for companies from a compliance perspective, from the filing, et cetera. And second, that because they, there's so much money in private capital markets, they can actually raise, continue raising money without having to go public. Because going public was a way to continue raising money from public capital markets. So, so the tendency has shifted. Now you have you know, less, like, less than half of the number of publicly traded companies that used to be in the US. It used to be like, I don't know, 8,000 and now you have 4,000 only. And then companies, you know, go out and go public when they were much bigger and they're much older. And therefore, you know, the opportunity for you to make money in public capital markets is kind of gone. So, you know, look, if, even if I buy Airbnb now and it does very well like Amazon, you know, it's already a hundred billion, right? So, so I'm going to do a 20x if it gets to two trillion, as opposed to you know a 2,000x that you did with Amazon. But somebody made a 2,000x with Airbnb when they invested when it was private, right? So I think this is, in my opinion, is problematic, right? Because it basically, you know, it goes against what we were discussing about trying to democratize access to to markets, right? Because the the, the markets that are accessible are the public market, because now the money is being made on the private markets that are completely inaccessible. <laughs> so this is kind of what we're trying to fix. Let's get into that, right? I mean, what would make the private markets behave more efficiently, especially now with companies like Securitize playing the role of the issuer? So I think that, you know, look, first, first we need to, you know, give uh, everyday investors a, a simple way to access private capital markets. So it shouldn't be that complicated. You know, I think that, that you find the deals, they should be more you know, public deals that you can actually access, uh, you know, the, the, the barriers of participating in the deals should be lower. And I think that, you know, the SEC in the US and other regulators are, are kind of working towards that, like, you know, crowdfunding rules is a good example of trying to, to lower the threshold of accessing public capital markets. You also need to make sure the issuers, you know, have a simple way of doing it, like the filings for, you know, raising privately, but with a public offering, let's say like a Reggae Plus, where it's a private offering, but that you can offer to the public and do general solicitation, should be lower because, look, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the issues, the potential issues are relatively small, right? Like in the US, you can you can go on, you can, uh, you know, gamble in a casino, which, you know, most people don't know <laughs> that the likelihood of you winning is like very low, right? Because you're always against the odds, but nevertheless, people go there, it's completely legal, etc. So it should be also legal. And, and simple for me to be able to invest in a private company or for a private company to be able to sell shares of a private company to, to retail investors if they wanted to. Um, so that's the num number one. And number two, you, should, you know, for the everyday people, liquidity is more important than for the ultra wealthy if you want, right? Like if you have a lot of money, you can park, let's say 50% of your money in illiquid investments that are not like a VC, for instance, which is basically 10 years until you get start getting any returns or something, seven to 10 years. And it's not a problem, right? But if you're a retail investor and then, you know, you get married and have three kids and you need to buy a house, then you need to have liquidity if you've invested money. And if we have to wait 16 years, like in case of Airbnb, for the company to go public, for you to be able to have liquidity, that's a problem, right? So, so I think, you know, more accessibility to private deals and make this simple both for the issuer and the investor to participate and side by side with some degree of liquidity for those deals, I think is the combination that will open up, uh, you know, private capital markets. And of course, make it digital, make it simple, eliminate intermediaries, like all these things that get in the way of getting things done. So, 
Yeah, on the legal side, it, it seems to always be playing catch up to new new technology, right? And you've mentioned Reggae Plus and your hand in helping Exodus make that deal. Talk a little bit about Reg crowdfunding, right? Which has also similarly yep. uh, opened up in investing to at least U.S. retail investors. Yeah, so this this during the Jobs Act, uh, which was 2012, this, uh, this there were kind of like three main changes uh, in regulation. One was RegCF, regulation crowdfunding, which was established, and you could with a very simple, let's say, filing that has a very low threshold for approval. Let's say um, you can raise up to one million dollars from retail. Now you can raise up to five million dollars. So because the SEC has recently changed it, so it's very powerful. And there's some companies like you know Republic here in the U.S. Uh, that have perfected. The, the, the Reg CF filing, right? So they're very good at, at, at filing this Reg CF. They've standardized the, the legal documentation, which is something I've always been thinking. It's like, why why do we need to repay the same lawyers or not to put the same disclaimers for the same type of offerings? Just like make a template. Mm. And just I just populate information about my own company that I want to raise money, and the rest should be the same for everybody, right? Because it's the same if you read these things, which I read, <laughs> read them. Like 99% of the disclaimers are like the same. It's possible that the company doesn't meet his business plan, or it's possible that this ends up not being illiquid, and you know, kind of like the same things. So, so I think that RexCF, you know, has become to some extent standardized, and it's very easy to file and to raise up to five million dollars. Reggae Plus still is kind of like one degree of more complexity um, in terms mm. of filing the disclosures and stuff like that, but you can then raise up to seventy-five million dollars. Um, which is great, right? So $75 million is a lot of money. So it's not for small companies uh, anymore. And then, of course, you have the Reg D 506C, which is what a lot of the security token offerings use, which allows you to raise infinite amount of money, but you know only for accredited investors because you don't actually have to file anything with the SEC before the offering. You can file it after and just basically register saying you know how much shares you sold for what price and you know how many investors and things like that so so i think these kind of three tiers give a lot of options i think there is a few things that are problematic on the on the reg cf and reggae plus you know is is great that you don't have to um you don't have a limit in the number of investors that you can have which is great because then you can bring thousands of investors and this having many investors also you know enables liquidity because there's more people that want to sell and buy right and then in the in the reg deep option, you still have a limit of like 2,000 shareholders, which I think is problematic because it then kind of hinders liquidity because you cannot have more than 2,000 shareholders uh, all the time. Or if you're a fan, it's 100 shareholders. So, I mean, there's still things that need to be fixed, but, you know, the tools are there. We just need to make it as cheap as possible and as accessible as possible for people. Is there anything else on the legal side that you, you know is being worked on in addition to Reg A plus and Reg CF? Well, if you if you listen to you know some of the commissioners that are active in this space as well as in crypto like Hester Peirce and etc., um, I think that one of the things he mentioned, uh, I think towards the end of last year, was that they were looking at um, you know kind of simplifying the definition of a created investor so more people will actually fit within that definition. I think that's important because the definition of a created investor is based on on wealth, you know, how much money you have. Um, and sometimes, you know, you might not have a lot of money, but might be very sophisticated and you should be able to invest then, or vice versa, you might have a lot of money, but be very unsophisticated and you shouldn't be investing. <laughs> so I think that making it based, making it simpler to, for you to qualify as an accredited investor, like it happens in Europe where the threshold is lower, but on top of that, it's just basically, you have to reply some sort of questions online that qualifies you as a sophisticated investor. And that's it. I think that could be one of the biggest changes right because that's the biggest barrier right so the retail the, the ones that allow you for retail participation has you know legal costs that could be high 
um, and it takes some time. The ones that don't have those problems, like Reg D, they actually are only for accredited investors, and the definition of accredited investors is, uh, you know, is a problematic one, in my opinion. Uh, another good thing that has happened recently is they've also it used to be worse before, where if you, you know, if you, you know, prove that you're an accredited investor to an issuer, you know, after three months the accreditation expires and you have to do it again. And then now they've extended that once you prove you're accredited, it lasts for five years, which is great because now once we accredit one person, first it reduces the cost, right? Because accreditation, investor accreditation costs money because <laughs> somebody has to read, you know, accounting uh, letters or, or your, your tax filings or something like that to verify that you have the money you say you have, right? So the fact that we can eliminate that is alone another point of eliminating friction uh, to the process of participating in, in private capital markets. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I want to go back to one of the points that you made earlier, which I think doesn't get talked about enough. And I think that's the role that tokenized securities play in creating better engagement uh, between companies and investors, shareholders, right? And this type of customization that you were talking about using AMC as an example uh, through perhaps tokenized securities in the future is very interesting um, because I think in, in crypto, what we're seeing, right, is interest from folks in the creator economy, right? You mentioned Justin Blau earlier being very interested in uh, leveraging innovations like NFTs. There's also social tokens as well, right? These sort of reputation type tokens because there is this trend from direct via platform to consumer to direct to consumer. People want to feel that intimacy and we just haven't seen that at all really play out, you know, on the on the public market side, which theoretically should work out quite well for companies like Amazon, right? Instead of if, if you were a prime member, for example, why shouldn't you have access to equity um, and to a share of the profits of, of Amazon if you aren't already an existing shareholder, right? But if you've been a lifetime prime member, you know, that should give you perks that allow you to participate in the success of the company as well. Um, so wondering if you have any thoughts around that. Now look, I mean, imagine the, the amount of wealth that could have been created if companies like Apple or Amazon, not, not, not to their customers, let's just narrow it down. Imagine if they have done this with their own employees, which give, uh, you know, equity, which of course some people in Silicon Valley have stock options, many people, but not all the employees. Right? But imagine that if they can give, it, give an equity to all the employees uh, or as you mentioned, to all the users, right? Like you go and, and you know, after the third iPhone or whatever, you get, you know, <laughs> three shares in Apple or something like that. And um, and that, you know, if they had given to you that 10 years ago when the iPhone started coming out, or then imagine the amount of money you will have today, right? So you right. will have accumulated a lot of wealth um, indirectly. So um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, this uh, is a very good way to support your community. And as you said, you know, one of the things I like of the case of Exodus is that they did it directly, you know, soliciting to their community in a completely legal way, right? Um, they didn't have to go through any centralized, let's say, crowdfunding site or uh, things like that. They were selling directly the equity to their users. Of course, we, we were kind of in the middle of enabling this as a, for compliance purposes, but they, you know, for all intent, it was that themselves directly soliciting and raising the money from the user base, right? And, and I really like that, that idea because if we can then extend this idea to even physical spaces, it will actually really, truly democratize uh, capital markets. So imagine the scenario where you can walk into your favorite restaurant, okay, and that you go there like every two weeks or something like that, and you really like it, and then you want to support the restaurant, right? So instead of like giving a tip, 
suppose that you could just, you know, there was a, a QR code on the table, which now everybody, every time you see a QR code, you open your camera and, and load whatever is there. <laughs> and it says, invest in your, in your favorite uh, restaurant. And then you could just go and then, you know, from there, you take a picture of your ID, which everybody carries with them. You put your whatever social security number. So with only those pieces of information, you can verify the identity of the investor. And this, after that, let's say they could do a Rec CF, as we discussed, they could raise up to $5 million from retail. And you could just pay directly at the restaurant, $50, $100, whatever you want to contribute to the restaurant uh, to support them and also earn equity. Like if the restaurant does well and they open a second one, or they, then yeah. you make money, right? And then on top of that, then they'll they'll give you the token that represents the equity in the restaurant. And then the restaurant has a way for, for them to prove that you actually own a piece of the restaurant. And maybe they can do things like, I don't know, 5% discount on the meals or you know, extend the happy hour, whatever they come up with. So <laughs> An extra really, set of fries for the hungry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, refill for the, for the drinks. So, yeah, so this is, imagine if we could actually enable this, like suddenly everybody has access to capital markets, right? Because a restaurant typically doesn't have, cannot go to a VC to raise money. It's just not the, the things that the VCs do, right? They will not fund a restaurant. It might have problems getting a loan and a loan is, is debt, right? So, so you, you know, jeopardize potentially some of your profits and it has risk, et cetera. Selling equities is less risky, right? Um, so, so imagine if they could do that and they could raise from their own customer base, which then will keep coming back to the restaurant so that the business will actually uh, benefit as well. So, Taking the loyalty card to a whole nother level, uh, exactly. which I think is, is much whole, needed. Yeah. Level. yeah, because, you know, the loyalty card, doesn't really align you with the success of the restaurant, right? One of the things that Justin right. Blau said is that this new way of, you know, NFTs uh, is a way for, you know, aligning the financial incentives. A loyalty card doesn't give me an incentive. I mean, I have a loyalty card in whatever Walmart, and then maybe I had it 20 years ago, and I still have my points there, and then Walmart now is like a, half, a thousand times bigger, and my loyalty card is not a thousand times bigger. <laughs> so I don't want loyalty right. points. I want equity in the company, because if they do well, I'm going to do well, and then I'm going to be more incentivized to continue going there, to promote it to my friends, and to support it. So, Yes, investors should definitely adopt that mindset of demanding more from the company that you are contributing to, right? Either yeah. monetarily or, you know, through some other means uh, of marketing, basically, for the company as as a consumer. Yeah, there, there definitely needs to be that, that bit of alignment there. So with all this as context, let's return back to Securitize. Securitize is a primary issuance platform for security tokens with a mission to democratize the securities market through tokenization, right? Basically, you help private companies raise money by issuing tokens. And to me, crypto is re reinventing our understanding of the financial markets, uh, about the infrastructure, how to build a better financial experience for the next generation. So, Carlos, let's say you are talking to a teenager. Perhaps this is a high schooler at a career fair. How would you explain what you're doing at Securitize, what you're building, what your mission is, so that you get this teenager excited about Securitize's future? Wow. <laughs> to a teenager, I will, you know, I think that, you know, kids should be educated about financial independence. Uh, since they're kids, they need to learn that they need to earn uh, money and that they need to save money, but they also need to invest money. And it's much better to have equity than a salary, right? Because equity can multiply and a salary doesn't, right? So I will basically tell them that what we're doing is precisely trying to empower people to become more wealthy 
um, buy, allow them to basically sell or buy equity in private companies very easily. Um, and that's that money then gets reinvested back into the economy and then, you know, probably reinvested in another other private uh, companies, uh, etc. So so that we will use, we will digitize the process to make it simple. Like kids are used to everything being digital. They just don't understand that mm-hmm. certain parts of the world are still not digitized. <laughs> so, so I will tell them this is like the same way that you play, you know, the YouTube digitize, uh, you know, video consumption uh, compared to analog TV or linear TV. Then we are doing the same thing for capital markets. I'm super curious now because you give such a great, uh, simple explanation. How do you tell your kids, like, what does dad do? How do your kids understand your job running Securitize? So my kids are are little, so, but I'm trying to um, teach them about, uh, you know, financial independence and and administering Mm -hmm. money because I think that's the basic thing. My my twins are five years old and my daughter is, is eight. And I'll give you one example happened during the pandemic. During the pandemic, obviously, we were stuck at home. And then they started like playing very actively Roblox, which just went public recently as well. And it's another yes, great yeah. one, by the way, that you should be reading. Because <laughs> I was, I, I was like a, a Roblox, let's say, user and, and watcher, let's say, of my kids playing Roblox all the time. So when it went public, that was another excellent read. It's like how these guys make money, how they get to where they are, etc. And then in Roblox, you know, for the most part, it's free. But then certain times you need to buy this Roblox, called, which is the in-currency in the game in-game currency and then you can then you know buy stuff or things like that so my kids then started asking like oh can, can i get 500 robux can i get 100 robux can i get a thousand robux because i want to do this and that and then at some point in time i realized like this is out of control um so what i told them is look i'm gonna buy you a subscription it means you will have this amount of money of robux <laughs> for, for them is money every month and that's it and you need to figure out how to make it last until the end of the month and it was very interesting to see the reaction of some of them uh-huh. like my daughter which is eight she was actually, you know, from the beginning, very carefully to make sure she always had money throughout the entire month. And and even to the point that sometimes she doesn't actually spend all the Robux she has. And then, you know, she can then buy something bigger the month after, stuff like that. My my boy, which is five, he was like, he will exp- spend all the money literally the first five minutes. <laughs> and then he will be on the entire month complaining to me, oh, I want more, I want more. I'm totally no. That's what you get. And then slowly started learning about like, okay, I need to administer this money because it needs to last me for a, a month. And I think it's like, yeah, I got a budget. So this is this week I'm going to spend this much. And now they're much more careful with uh, with that, right? So so you will teach them, you know, what to do with the money in the future. Now, the next thing I want to teach them is like how you can actually, you know, kind of invest that money, right? So they, I've read that there is... Uh, Certain platforms that now have, um, you know, they allow uh, teenagers to invest. So as soon as my my daughter becomes uh, old enough, I want to give her some money so so they can she invest in either crypto or equities, um, so she can start learning about the process of investing and picking up companies, etc. Incredible. Sister's definitely not sharing with little brother. That that's for sure. I don't know if <laughs> ro- Robux are transferable between accounts or not, but uh, I I, I'm that. sure they are very very particular yeah, with their treasure chest. <laughs> just two years ago we did not have the type of infrastructure that is required for a security token marketplace to exist there are no licensed platforms or no transfer agents right but late in 2020 you guys completed the purchase of a broker dealer Uh, you received an ats license so you guys are part of the really emerging crop of platforms really pioneering the security token market. If we visualize the STO stack, 
who are the other market participants that you know Securitize has to work with in order for a full security token issuance to work out? So you're absolutely right. When when we started in this industry, and you know I uh, I put myself there as <laughs> for blame as well. We were very naive, thinking that we could just get things done with technology and maybe playing with you know other regulated entities or getting licenses in a simple way. And we, I mean, at least me, I don't want to speak for everybody else. I just didn't understand what I was getting into and the complexity of regulations and getting the licenses and operating these licenses, which is not just getting the license. The like license is like the beginning of a long journey of actually operating it and reporting and going through examinations with the regulator, etc. I think that. You know, in, in spite of all the excitement that was in the market in 2017, 2018, now in retrospective, it was clear nothing was going to happen because the, the tools were not there, right? Now, yeah, I think I will say that there is less hype in the industry, but there is a lot more reality and a lot more infrastructure in place. As you mentioned, we own a transfer agent, so that license allows us to basically deal with the securities issues, securities, do compliance for investor onboarding, you know, take care of um, you know, uh, corporate actions and asset servicing, things like that. So that's already in place and we're probably, I mean, it's public information, we're the largest one in the space because you can actually see the filings that everybody does every year and you can see how many investors and how many issues we manage and we are like you know, five, ten times bigger than anybody else. Now, the second piece that was missing was, as I mentioned to you, the, the liquidity piece, right? So you need to enable liquidity for private investors to also participate in private capital markets. And for, for a long time, there's been very few uh, ATSs, uh, which is the license that you need to have to be able to trade private securities called an alternative trading system. So there were very few that were operating in this digital asset security space and, and you know, without mentioning any names, but, you know, none of them actually did it particularly successfully. Either they had zero liquidity or they had very few assets listed for many, many years and, you know, failing to list things uh, for whatever reason. So we got kind of frustrated about it. <laughs> and I went back to the board and I told them, look, we can do two things. We can just wait for somebody to fix this problem or we can go and fix it ourselves if we identify the right uh, license. So we ended up identifying a license that we could purchase and completed the acquisition at the end of last year. So now we are almost about to, to launch our secondary marketplace. And to answer the other part of your question, which other pieces of the puzzle we don't own? Well, we don't do custody of securities. Um, and then we also don't, don't escrow money. So we work with other partners that can actually hold cash or crypto or securities, depending. And that's kind of like the only third-party equation that we will do. We'll work with somebody like Coinbase Custody, uh, if somebody wants to send uh, crypto uh, or other companies to be able to fulfill that part. And you know, for the time being, we're just going to work with partners and see if it works well. Um, if not, then maybe we'll have to think about whether we need that license as well and be able to be completely autonomous. Right. So like a qualified custodian? It's either a qualified custodian or a trust, a trust license. A trust license will give you both things. With a trust license in the US, you can you know, hold securities and you can hold cash or crypto as well. I see. So then is the goal to manage the entire life cycle of this process? Like, would, would that be beneficial or would it be beneficial to actually work with third parties uh, for services that you might not be in, be an expertise in? So that's a good question. So in the, if you if you look at how innovation, what is the, the life cycle of innovation? I don't know if, if you read the, uh, this book from... Uh, and Geoffrey Moore called uh, Crossing the Chasm. It's oh, a very yeah. famous, uh, it's, a, 
is basically it was published like 25 years ago when I started in this uh, in the innovation space and technology space, and it basically talks about the the life cycle of innovation, and it says at the beginning, you know, the the people that actually purchase a new product or a new service are what he refers to as the early adopters, right? These are the enthusiasts that like technology, that anything new is like, I'm, I'm like that, right? Like any stupid new thing that comes <laughs> out, I need to buy it and try it and, you know, and then companies get the, the wrong impression thinking that they're making progress because somebody's buying their service at the beginning. But most companies then get, get stuck there and they never actually manage to become mass market and transition to what he calls the mainstream uh, market, right? Because the technology is too rough around the edges or because it doesn't solve really the problem that most people have. Or the other part that he argues is that that technology only solves one part of the puzzle, but to be able to like serve a mainstream, you need to add another five pieces and put them together, right? And this is what he refers to as a whole product. And he argues that when an industry is, is nascent and, uh, and is, uh, you know, new, the best way to serve the industry is what he, what, what he refers to as the whole product to transition to mainstream. Um, and then companies can then just, you know, jump into the bagel because they only need to deal with one provider that puts everything together. Um, so I think that our industry at the moment, it is sufficiently immature, if you want, and, and nascent that if I'm an issuer, I need to go, this guy for a transfer agent, the other guy that has the KYC, the other guy that has, you know, is going to hold my cards and the other guy that's going to trade and you know, this, the experience is going to be so bad that, you know, people are not going to do it. I think one, as we mature and, and the, the layers become more interoperable and compatible, et cetera, it probably will be good. But our, in our experience, people don't want to deal with those things today. They just want to get the job done, which is, you know, issue their security tokens and sell them, et cetera. So if you can actually give them the end-to-end -end experience, uh, it's probably a much better way to penetrate the mainstream market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, as we wrap up here, I did want to touch on uh, Securitize Capital, which is a subsidiary of Securitize. You guys launched two funds called uh, Securitize Capital BTC Yield Fund and another one called the USDC Yield Fund. Talk to us about how these offerings are structured and who you guys are, are targeting through these funds right now. So look, this was a way for us to to put together two, uh, two thoughts I had at that time, right? So the first one is, how do we bring more security tokens quickly to the market? So, so we have more things to put in our broker dealer to trade. We create more securitized IDs, which in turn, they can actually go and uh, participate in other offerings and things like that, right? So I, I when especially when we were going to launch the, the when we purchased the broker dealer and the ATS license, I was like kind of, you know, thinking, well, as a company, we've been very much B2B, right? So we serve issuers. Mm -hmm. But now once we have an, a market, a marketplace is going to be is a is a B two B two C right. So we're going to have to figure out how to bring assets, but how to bring investors as well. And that's a marketplace. It's a dual two sided marketplace, which is a different business than the one we have been running for the last few years. And so I started reading about how other companies kind of successfully navigated the the two sided marketplace and which is a bit of a chicken, chicken and egg problem, right? Because if you don't have good assets, then the investors don't want to come. But if you don't have investors, the good assets don't want to list because there's not going to be liquidity. And then I actually read about one um, company that was doing um, uh, e-learning online, and it was building a platform for learning, and it had the same problem. They couldn't get students because there was no content, but they couldn't get content because there were no students, right? <laughs> so nobody wanted to put things there. And what the guys did was they, they just come up with their own content. So they went and started like scrapping YouTube videos with a whatever, you know, Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg speech at a university and put them on the platform. And then they started going to conferences where people were already 
you know, giving a speech and they were asking, like, can I record it and give you some money and then put it on the platform? So they kind of artificially started creating their own content to start attracting students. And then at some point in time, the, the virtual circle happened and then, you know, they had enough students that people then wanted to put content there and then they exploded, right? So I thought like the same thing. Why don't we create our own security tokens of interesting things so we can then attract more people to our marketplace? And that in turn will attract other people, other issuers there to do it there, right? So it was not, it's not supposed to be like a standalone business. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to do it. It's kind of a way to bootstrap at the beginning the, the broker. And then our audience, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by people that when they, you tell them, oh, no, I make a 9% yield on USDC, they are like, what? 9% yield? <laughs> like, I'm getting a little, like I'm a, as I mentioned to you, I'm a user of Robinhood, and Robinhood had, has these yield accounts where you can put the money that you have in your Robinhood account that you haven't actually purchased securities. And they advertise like it's, it's a great product because it gives you 0.5% APY. <laughs> I was like, what? 0.5% APY? Anybody in crypto will think this is stupid. So, and then I realized... High yielding when, account. Yes, high yielding account. This is 0.5%, right? So, and then, you know, some friends ask me like, how do we do this? Oh, well, you have to go, you have to open a crypto account, and you have to purchase USDC, then you have to open another account somewhere else where you have to then deposit the USDC. And they were like, well, which one I use? Like, how many are there? Like, is this safe? Or what happens if a company reduces the yield, like one of the companies is doing like, how do I move it to another one? And this is just centralized, you know, borrowing and lending. If you go to DeFi, it's even much more complicated because then you have to connect your MetaMask browser, right. the Compound or Uniswap, whatever. So this is... For, for people in the crypto space like us, it sounds very easy and natural, and we do it all the time. For 99% of the population, this is still, you know, too complicated and, and too kind of unfamiliar, right? So we felt like, why don't we give investors that want to get this exposure to crypto and they want to get, get these yields, you know, a very simple way to do it through something they're familiar with, which is securities, right? Because securities, security mm -hmm. tokens are securities, right? They can put it in an investment retirement account. They can invest from their family office. They can just do whatever um, they want. So that was the idea. Let's wrap up all this complexity that the crypto and the DeFi space has out there and put it in something that becomes very easy for people to, in, to invest um, without having to figure out how to do it, uh, you know, with all the counterparties. And also providing them a little bit more like if you want... Um, security that this is properly managed, right? So we've, we've partnered with companies like Genesis Trading and Anchorage, which are probably two of the top and best companies in the space to be able to produce those yields. And we're about soon to launch a, a third one. Um, so uh, that was the main idea. Bootstrap the marketplace and at the same time give investors uh, access to crypto yields without having to complicate their lives. <laughs> Makes sense. So with the time that we have left, Carlos, I'd love to just understand, are there other questions you have about security tokens that you're exploring right now? To be honest with you, like the thing that I would like to do the, the most today um, is to figure out how to use um, some of the DeFi protocols for security tokens. Um, because in my view, things like automated market making, which works very well for illiquid you know, assets, right? It's actually perfect for security tokens, and from a from a technology perspective, it's very easy to do. We've we've done it, so we've integrated, you know, our digital securities protocol, which is an ERC twenty with Uniswap and with Balancer and things like that. So from a technology perspective, it's very simple. Now the question is, from a regulatory perspective, how you making happen, right? Because this is based if these if these tokens that you're putting on, let's say Uniswap or something like that, some people are doing it in a, in a crazy way, in my opinion, because it's not only about like whitelisting the wallets, as some people tend to think very naively, like you're basically becoming a broker dealer yourself, right? Because you have 
let's say, 100 shares in a company, and it's not that I'm selling them peer-to-peer with another investor. No, I'm putting in there, and I'm tra- they are trading with my securities all the time. So I'm kind of becoming a broker-dealer or a marketplace somehow. So, so this is um, it's probably more difficult to crack from a regulatory perspective, but if we figure out how to do it, and I saw that you know some companies in Asia where you know regulations are a bit uh, either lighter or faster <laughs> or both um, have started experimenting with those things, and to me that's kind of like the holy grail of uh, of this, right? Because as I mentioned, you know, enable access to capital markets has to go hand by hand with liquidity, right? So for for assets that are going to be very liquid, automated market making is kind of like the best way to do it because there's always going to be uh, some degree of liquidity. Um, in an automated way without having to go through like centralized uh, exchanges. So could broker dealers be a liquidity provider on Uniswap? Exactly. So that's a good point. So you see what the problem with this, um, with these licenses, the broker dealer or the ATS, is that they, they have a very kind of like narrowly defined set of things that you can do with a license. And every time you want to change the license and I want to do something new, which theoretically I should be allowed to do it because it's, you know, Obviously, this is um, you can con- you can consider Uniswap to be in a marketplace, right? So I can I can overlay my license license on top of it and say yes, I'm the one providing the the liquidity. I just happen to do it with this protocol on the DeFi rather than you know with a centralized order book. So theoretically, it shouldn't be that different than, than an ATS. Now the problem is because you will change the way the ATS operates because it will not be a centralized order book. There will be this DeFi protocol, etc. You have to file with a regulator, you know, an amendment to your you know, charter, let's say, telling them, I want to also be doing this. And then I think that the conversation there is going to be probably a long one, right? And and we have probably just start anyway at some point, but um, because the first thing I'm going to have to understand is what is DeFi and what is automated market making, how it works, and then how you're going to make it work for securities. Long learning curve. (laughs) Yeah, so at least here in the US, they have uh, FinHub and they have some people that are, you know, at the SC that are knowledgeable about these things. So hopefully they're already thinking about you know, those things. And then, as I mentioned, probably in other jurisdictions, which is not the U.S., might be an easier way, simpler way to start, right? So because then, you know, you have a smaller regulator that is easier, more accessible or more forward thinking and and then start doing it there. And once you kind of show how it works, then maybe come to tougher jurisdictions like the U.S. Yeah, excellent. Well, on that note, Carlos, thanks so much for hopping on Crypto on Stack today. I learned a ton. This was a super fun conversation. The first one for me, actually, about security tokens and talking about the private (laughs) markets. So this is my gateway uh, into understanding (laughs) your domain, which is always, always a neat experience. So yeah, appreciate you so much. Thank you. And uh, look forward to seeing the progress on Securitize's end. Really exciting. Thanks, uh, Leslie. It's been my pleasure to be here after, you know, listening to your voice so many times to actually see you in person. Thanks so much. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.